morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Uh, If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 539 in the paperback Bibles and 831 in the hardcover Bibles. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need to hear from you. I am very aware today of the lack of our ability to do anything. So we pray as you once showed, where you took some loaves of bread and fish and multiplied it enough to feed the thousands. We pray that you would take the puffs of air that come from my mouth this morning You would multiply them many times over in the hearts of your people, that they would bear fruit and that they would result in blessing for thousands. I would literally ask that because of our time gathered this morning, that that lives would be touched uh, outside the walls of this church, neighborhoods would be changed, people would be helped, that there would be countless actions that are produced by our gathering this morning. This is what we're asking for, that you would multiply these puffs of air into many, many, many thousands of actions that result in the good of many people and the glory of your great name. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Seven Mile Road, we are on Easter number six for us here because we're continuing in our series on the resurrection and what it means for life after death and the implications it has for life before death. I have to tell you that in some ways this whole sermon series is like one long sermon. It's just that we couldn't keep you here one Sunday for 13 hours in a row without a revolt. And so we've chopped it up into different parts. But each week what we're essentially doing is we're unrolling the implications of the resurrection. It's as if we're going back to Jesus rose and so it means this. Jesus rose and so it means that. And we keep going back to the resurrection to keep unpacking its implications on our lives. So if you were here last week as we celebrated Easter proper, you were here as we said, because Jesus rose, it means that death will die. And if you were here last week, I still have in my mind the great illustration that Binu used of a prized boxer. 
a champion fighter who had knocked out the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, every one of them to the grave, dead and done. But then, all of a sudden, Easter comes along, and now there is a one in the lost column. And that one loss to death makes all the difference in the world. Death has been defeated. Death will be put six feet under. Death is done. And, and that was a surprise to everyone. If you were here with us over these weeks, you'll remember nobody expected that. Nobody expected that death would be defeated in the middle of human history. For example, if you were with us, you remember that the Jews, the people who Jesus was a part of, they thought that there might be a resurrection, but when did they anticipate the resurrection? At the end of human history. And it would happen to all people, not in the middle of human history, to one person. And so they thought that there might be a day coming when God's appointed ruler, the Messiah, as they called it, the one that would set all the wrongs right and make the world right again, when he came and ushered in this new and final age, this new era, this new dawning of a day, then maybe death will be defeated. Maybe the resurrection will happen. But then Jesus comes and rises in the middle of human history. And here's why that mattered. It matters because that meant for them that the age that they had been waiting for had arrived. Don't miss that because that's important. It means that the age that they were longing for had come. It was here. It had broken into human history here and now. The, the dawn to come had arrived. It was already here and yet at the same time not yet fully here. It had come and was coming. It had arrived and was arriving. It was here already, but not yet here fully. Now, how, how do we make sense of that? How are we to understand this already here, but not yet fully here? Well, it's sort of like this. Imagine you're at a surprise party. Imagine you're in the room where all the guests are there and everyone's socializing and talking and mingling and you're waiting for the guest of honor to arrive. And as everyone's talking, this one person is peering out the window and suddenly they see the car pull up at the edge of the driveway and they turn to everyone in the room and they go, she's here. Now, what happens? Everything in the room changes, right? And if you were to ask, is she here? Yes, she's here but not yet fully here, right? She's, she's already here. She's at the top of the driveway, but she's coming. She's, she's arrived and is arriving. She's come and is coming. And, and as you wait for the seconds to pass when the door throws open, everything in the room, though, changes in light of the arrival, right? You don't carry on like you did one second before the advent of this person, you don't carry on like one second before the news of the arrival. Suddenly everything changes because now what happens? Shh, shh, and the shushers are shushing the shushers and shh, everyone's got to be quiet. And now the heart starts to race because it's building for the moment when the doors would be thrown open. And now the person arrives fully and then it's pandemonium and everyone yells surprise and the lights go on. And then there's food and drink and dancing and all the rest. Here's the point. In light of what you're waiting for in those coming seconds, everything in the here and now changes. So it is with the resurrection. Nobody thought it was coming in the middle of human history, and yet they announced when Jesus broke out of the tomb, it's arrived. The day has dawned. The era, the age of the Messiah has come. The kingdom of God has broken through into this world. It's been inaugurated. It's begun and it's coming. It's arrived already here, but not yet fully here. And what it means is that there's all kinds of implications that reach back into the present that change the here and now. We're in this world, in that closed room, waiting for the doors to be thrown open and Christ to arrive fully. But until that day arrives, everything about life here now changes. Now I have to tell you this. This is what has struck me the most about the resurrection. When I've thought of the resurrection, and likely you as well, you've probably thought of the resurrection as what it means for life after death. Hear that again with me. If you've thought about resurrection, you've probably thought of it as what it means for life after death. 
But what I've begun to see and what struck me most as we've been talking and studying through this is what the resurrection means for life before death. How that that moment yet to come is reaching back into the present with implications for the here and the now. This future reality that we're waiting and how it changes the present reality we're living in. Now listen, one of those future realities that reaches back from the resurrection into the present day with implications on us is concerning the issue of justice. The issue of justice. Because the biblical hope laid out in the pages of scripture was that when the day dawned and when Messiah and Lord finally came, he would establish God's kingdom on earth. And that would mean that injustice would finally end. The world would be put back to right again. All the wrongs would be undone. The lion would lie down with the lamb. All things would be made new and right. And that the world would finally have a judge who would judge rightly and set everything right. And because of the resurrection, the apostle said Jesus is that long-awaited judge who would judge the earth and make everything right. Listen to this in Acts 17. Paul is speaking to a bunch of Greeks, and he says this in Athens. He says to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul shows up in Athens, Greece, and he talks to a bunch of pagan Greeks who have idols set up to all kinds of gods, and in fact, they've got one idol literally named to the unknown God, just in case they missed one of the deities out there. And so they have no idea about what God is really like. And so Paul shows up and he says, look, you've been ignorant about who God is, and the time of ignorance God has now overlooked till now. But now is the time for you to repent, to turn around. God wants you to grow up and understand who God really is. And so here's the thing. There is the day appointed when God will judge the world, and he'll do so by a man who's been appointed. And who is that man? Well, it's the man that God raised from the dead. He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here's what we're saying, and and if you've been paying attention, all the pieces will start coming together. Because Jesus rose, the first century world declared he's the Messiah. Right? There were all the fakes and all the phonies who had come saying, I'm Messiah. Rome did what Rome did to all the Jewish messiahs. But finally, you had one Messiah that Rome couldn't stop, who came back from the dead. And so the first century world declared Jesus is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah, he is the whole world's Lord. And here, Acts 17 is adding, and if he's the whole world's Lord, he's also the whole world's judge. Jesus is the long-awaited judge of the world who would make everything right. Now, when you hear the word judge, it doesn't send particularly rosy thoughts into your heart. It's not a, a very comforting word. You don't hear judge and judgment is coming and think that's good news. Now, you don't think that, perhaps, friends, because you and I, at least the most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us have never suffered injustice. We don't hear judge and judgment as good news because most of us have never suffered injustice. It's like this. If, if you're driving and all of a sudden you see a cop car driving behind you, what happens? Your palms get sweaty and you get nervous and you go, what does he want? And you just see the whole thing, that car, those sirens, that light, all of it is just a nuisance to you and you get nervous about what have I done? What does he want? Now on the other hand, If you were being held up, if you were being held at gunpoint, if you were being mugged, and now a cop car shows up, man, that sight would be the most beautiful sight in your eyes. Those sirens would be music to your ears. I mean, it would be good news for you because justice has arrived just when you needed it. I mean, it's the same car. Same light, same siren, and yet now what you thought was a nuisance is suddenly great news to your heart. At last, a man of justice has arrived to help me. Well, the scriptures say God is a judge, and he is bringing into the world judgment. We hear that and we go, nuisance. What does he want? 
But we probably wouldn't think that way if, if we were one of the folks whose children had been abducted and turned into child soldiers like the people in Sudan. Or if you were the one who had been promised a job, tricked, drugged, put on a train, you wake up in a brothel in Bombay and there are now trapped as a sex slave for the end of your days and you'd run to the police except they're in on it too and there's no justice anywhere. Corruption is everywhere. I can tell you this. If you went there and announced to them, listen, into this city there has come now a good judge and he's not corrupt, and he's not in bed with the politicians, and he's not in the pocket of the mafia, and I'm telling you, he hates the crooks, and he's going to bring everyone to justice, and he's going to clean the streets, and he's going to end injustice. I'm telling you, that would sound like music in their ears. It would be good news. At last, finally, justice has arrived. It would not be nuisance. It would be gospel, good news. Judgment has come. And I want you to hear, this is how the Bible viewed the coming of God as judge. If you were here for the call to worship as we began the service, we read from Psalm 98. Hear these words again. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And it's not just us. Look at verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Why? Why is everyone going to break out in song and bust out their instruments? Why is the whole earth going to join in celebration? Verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Have you ever put that together? This psalm is saying we should go crazy in celebration. We should sing and make noise and bust out the instruments. We should call upon the whole earth, the rivers to clap their hands, the hills to burst out in song. And why should we do that? Because finally a judge is coming who will judge the world rightly and he will put an end to all the injustice of this world. We live in this world where they're the powerful and the powerless. We live in this world where the greedy get ahead and the violent win and bullies beat up on the wink, the weep, the weak. And in that world, God is saying, I'm coming as a judge. And the scripture says, so let the whole earth exalt him. Let the whole earth burst out in song. And passages like Acts 17 in the New Testament come along and say, by his resurrection, Jesus is that judge we were waiting for. By his resurrection from the de dead, Jesus is the one who has arrived. He's come. He's broken into the world. His judgment is here. Now, it's here. It's at the top of the driveway. It's at the top of the driveway. And what that means is there's all kinds of implications for what happens to us in light of the fact that he's come and is coming. And the implication for us is that because Jesus is judge, because he will end injustice, because his rule and reign has broken into the world and has inaugurated and been launched, and because his project of making the world right again has begun, because Jesus is about justice, guess what it means for us who are his followers? Guess what we are to be about? Justice. It means that his followers must also be passionately committed to doing justice justice. Now, if I tell you that Christians are to be passionately committed to justice, and, and you can think in your mind all that that means. It includes the feeding of the poor and the caring for the sick, the fighting for the oppressed, the setting slaves free, the improving schools, the helping neighborhoods, the making cities beautiful, all of that work. If I tell you Christians are to be passionately committed to that, I don't think that that would come as a shock to you. I don't think I'd be telling you something you don't presently know. So rather than inform you something new, what I do want to do is help you motivate to get there. How do we become the kind of people that do what we know we ought to do and be about what we know we ought to be about? And what I want to suggest to us this morning is it's by maintaining a vision of Jesus and specifically his life, his death, and his resurrection that we will be moved to be a people that are committed passionately to justice. Let me say that again. The life of Jesus, 
moves us to be committed to justice. The death of Jesus will move us to be committed to justice. The resurrection of Jesus will move us to be committed to justice. So that's what I want to show us this morning. We'll walk through these quickly, but the life, death, and resurrection move us towards doing justice. Here's the first one. The life of Jesus moves us towards doing justice. When you talk about, some of my road, when you talk about the life of Jesus, I'm saying right out of the gate, his life is in solidarity with the poor. Right out of the gate. I mean, you don't have to wait a minute. From the moment he emerges from the womb, he's identified with the poor. Jesus was born poor. Remember the story, right? The Christmas story is not the hospital, not the palace, not the inn. It was in the stable with the animals in the manger. That's where he's born. And he's born poor to poor parents in a poor family to the point that when these two parents bring him to the temple to present him, they cannot offer the middle class offering. They have to give the provision that's made for the poor in that they offer two pigeons because they cannot afford what the middle class can. Jesus, hear it again, is not born among the middle class. Is born poor. Lives poor. Lives among the poor. Jesus is the one who in his ministry will say, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Meaning, as an adult man, he had no home. He was not a homeowner, or the other way to say it is, he was homeless. To the point that when they killed him, they rolled dice for all his property, and his property included the shirt off his back. That's all he had left to give. And they rolled dice for that too. The last week of Jesus' life is him doing what? Riding a borrowed donkey into Jerusalem. Having the last supper in a borrowed room with his disciples being put to death and buried in a borrowed tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus identified with the poor. Jesus stood in solidarity with the oppressed and the downtrodden. And hear this. You have to understand, we have to appreciate how crazy that is. If you've been around Christianity, you almost come to assume, of course, God has a special place in his heart for the poor. Right? What, what else would you expect? You come to think that way because you've been around Christianity. In the first world, in the ancient world, that isn't at all how anyone thought. One author and historian says this, if you surveyed the ancient religions of the day, what you found was that the gods aligned themselves with the rich, not the poor. That the gods were favoring the kings who ruled, the priests who were pure, the military captains who had power. This is the ones who God favored. And they figured that these are the ones who could build the gods magnificent temples, offer the gods delicious sacrifices. It was unheard of that Israel's God should have made provisions in the law for the poor. I want you to hear that. The Old Testament says, I want the nations to look at you and go, what is that? I want you to care for the poor in such a way that the nations would go, why do they do that? Yahweh would be the one God who would say, you can't offer a sacrifice? Fine, a cup of flour will do. Just come anyway. I'll take you anyway. I mean, that was unheard of. The way in which Yahweh stood in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden was unheard of. I mean, just think of God's calling card, his title. If you ask me, what's my calling card? If I go to speak somewhere, if they, if they write a bio about me, they write a J. Thomas pastor at Seven Mile Road Church because that's who I am. That's what I'm known for. That's what I do. When I want to be known about something, I want to be known for my work here, pastor at Seven Mile Road Church. That's the way it is with you. If you look at Jenny Filer, she is grant specialist at Alex's Lemonade Stand. That's who she is. That's her calling card. Sibby Verghese is, is president, CEO, I guess, of Trademark Construction Company. Right? That's, that, and you could think about it for yourself. Yahweh comes along, Psalm 68, and he says, you want to know who I am, what my calling card is? Write on the card, Father to the fatherless, protector of widows. Psalm 68, verse 5. Here's my calling card. Here's, you want my business card? Here it is. It says, Father to the fatherless, protector of widows. 
This is who I am. This is what I want to be known for. This is what I want my title in the earth to be. So then it should come as no surprise that this God demands that his people be about what he's about. Listen to some verses from the scripture. Seven Mile Road, we we have to love the Bible. So hear the Bible speak to you. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. God's command to his people is, my hands are not tight-fisted and cheap towards you. They're open, so your hands towards your brother must be the same way, whatever the need may be. Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We could go through an hour's worth of verses, one after another, as it rolls out God's concern for justice. Or listen to this from Job 29. Job is this man that God says, here's what an upright and blameless man looks like. And hear what his resume includes. Job 29, verse 12. I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I want you to hear that. When we think of what's a righteous person like, often we turn to define all of that in terms of inward piety. right? If you're going to work on becoming more righteous, you think, I think, it means i got to get my quiet times down, read the Bible and pray more, I've got to make sure that I stop looking at porn and avoid impurities and all of that. And the Bible says yes to all of that. But the Bible adds all these others to say, you want to know what righteousness looks like? It's that and the man who feeds the poor and visits the sick and helps the fatherless. This is the vision. It's a, it's a much bigger, comprehensive vision that I have for what righteousness looks like. It's not just inward personal piety, but outward social action too social responsibility. This is what makes up a righteous person. This is what God was looking for among his people. And listen, there was one Jew who lived out that vision perfectly. His name was Jesus Christ. And in his life and his ministry, you see this ethic lived out. Jesus lived in the margins, lived with the oppressed, ministered among the outcasts, He touched the untouchable and loved the unlovable. He fed the hungry. He raised the widow's son from the dead. He fed those who could not feed themselves. He came to do these works. In fact, when Jesus launches his ministry, listen to what he says in Luke 4. Jesus shows up in a synagogue. He opens the scriptures to one specific spot in Isaiah. And he reads this. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the scriptures, if you read that passage, says Jesus closed up the scroll and says, Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And the people were piping hot mad. But Jesus came to say, listen, this is what I've come for. This is the ministry I've come here for. And just like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus' entire life is identified with the poor, in solidarity with the oppressed. I mean, if you, if you heard Brett read that passage from Matthew, you heard it clearly, right? Think, think of what he says, Matthew 25. I won't read through it all now, but what does he say? When I was hungry... You gave me food, and when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And it says, and then the righteous are going to come and say, Jesus, when did we do any of these things for you? And he says, if you did that for one of the least of mine, I count it as if you'd done it to me. 
Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, I want you to identify me so closely with the folks you walk past that I need you to see my face in them when you do it. You got, I need you to identify me with the poor so closely that when you're driving by Roosevelt Boulevard and the guy is standing there, I need you to see me. And when you get off the train in Center City, I need you to see me there. You can't walk past without at least whatever else you do, you've got to see me there because I am identifying with them. I want you to read this, hear this brief meditation that I read. A bit lengthy, but I think worth it. Hear it with me. Jesus lives next door. He's an eight-year-old girl and her three-year-old brother. The son of man looks like those starving Ethiopian children. He only gets breakfast and lunch at school when he makes it. His mama is a crack whore. Nobody knows where his daddy is. I heard his mama lets her Johns do things to him. Poor king of kings. Jesus is two houses down and has six children. Now he's pregnant with the seventh. I don't know if he hasn't figured out what birth control is or what, but how he expects to feed all those babies. And you know with all those kids, the Lord of Lords can't work. That means hardworking taxpayers' money has to go for Christ's food stamps. The Lord is a crazy man, paranoid schizophrenic. If he doesn't take his medication, he walks up and down the street, cussing and spitting on everybody he passes. He's homeless, digs out of the trash cans for food. Somebody ought to do to get him off the street. Jesus is nothing but a nuisance. I'm starting to see the Son of God everywhere I go. He's always crying or begging or looking pitiful. He's ruining our neighborhood. Now hear me, I'm not making any political statements. But I'm telling you, the, the conservatives nor the liberals have the answer to this. Jesus is at least telling us, I want you to see all of this differently. And if you're going to see it differently, I need you to see my face in the faces you walk past. Because I am going to be identified with them. When you fed the hungry, you fed me. When you visited the one in prison, you visited me. When you did this for the least of them, you did it for me. Jesus was no stranger to being oppressed or to being poor or to being the victim of injustice. I mean, down to his last hours. Think of that for a moment. They arrested him at night right, while everyone was asleep, so no proper trial could be done. In the cover of night, in the darkness, they had this mockery of a trial. No charges against them that could even stick. I mean, the gospel accounts say they were tripping over themselves, and everybody countered one another's testimony. None of it even stuck, and yet they took that innocent man and killed him. Jesus knows what it's like to be the ultimate victim of injustice. If you want to grow a heart for justice, you have to go no further than to meditate on the life of Jesus. But hear this. It's not only the life of Jesus that moves us towards doing justice. It's the death of Jesus also. And we'll move through these even quicker now. The death of Jesus, second, moves us towards doing justice. Hear this, Maron. What happens at the cross? What happens when Jesus becomes the victim of ultimate injustice. What happens is Jesus, though he is innocent, is condemned so that we, though we are guilty, might be acquitted. Right? This is what happens. That the judge of all the world looks at us who deserve punishment and pardons us. And more than pardons us. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. Right? It's not just that he pays our endless debt. That's just bringing you to zero. He positively gives you all of his riches and righteousness. Right? This is Corinthians. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. This is the transaction. This is what the gospel is. The gospel says you were poor and needy and destitute, and Jesus came and took your place and your punishment, put it on himself, and gave you the undeserving gift of his righteousness and his riches. Now, if you really get that, if you really get what the death of Jesus is about, you will be motivated to do justice. How? Well, if you really understand what your condition was that required the death of Jesus, if you really understand, as Jesus said, those who are poor in spirit, 
right? If you remember, Jesus once taught and he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, the folks who really get the gospel will understand that they are spiritually poor. They're spiritually bankrupt. If you understand that your state was that you were poor and needy and destitute, that no human being could even help you. You needed a cosmic handout. You needed a cosmic handout to get you out of your situation. That all the riches of heaven were required to pull you out of your poverty. If you really get that, how are you going to look at the poor? You can't possibly look at them with superiority. You can't possibly look at them with condescension. Because when you look at the poor, what you'll see is you're looking at a mirror. You'll see, that's me. Right? When you look at the poor, you will see, that's who I am. If you see someone naked, you will, if you get what the death of Jesus is about, and what your condition was, and what it took for God to lift you up, when you see the naked, you'll go, that was me, and I was so covered in my shame trying to hide under fig leaves like Adam and Eve, that Jesus had to clothe me in his righteousness. If you come across the deaf, you'll go, my ears were stopped and could not hear the voice of God, and I was restraining against the Spirit of God, but he opened these deaf ears. When you come across the cripple, you'll say, it was I who was paralyzed in sin. No worse, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but he walked by and told me to walk. If you come across the outcast, the marginalized, the one who doesn't belong, the one who's not in the in crowd, you'll go, I was the one who was on the outside of the kingdom looking in. And Jesus came and adopted me and threw a banquet for me. I was the one on the outside in. You'll never treat the outsider the same way again. You'll never approach the awkward the same way again. Because that's me. What you'll begin to see as you look through each one is they are physically and socially what I am morally and spiritually. And if it were not for God coming by my way and showing me mercy, where would I be? So we do for another. You see, the Bible never appeals to guilt in order to get you to be a person of justice. It doesn't bring you some statistics and show you pictures and say, you ought to feel good and guilty about all those poor out there. No, the Bible's ethic is to come and remind you of the gospel. Can I remind you what God did when he died for you and move you then to being a person of justice? In the Old Testament, this is why if you read, God will come to Israel and say, I want you to take care of the immigrant. You know why? You were immigrants in Egypt, and I took care of you. I want you to take care of the outcast and the alien because you were outcast and aliens in Egypt, and I took care of you. This is the scripture's ethic. You are doing for another what God, through Christ, has come to do for you. And when we neglect works of justice, it's because we've forgotten that part of the gospel. This week on Wednesday, I was at the roller skating rink with the Northeast GCM, and we were at this fundraiser for Anne Frank School. My son, Micah, and my daughter, Hannah, are there, and I brought no extra money, and so they can't play any of the other games that the other parents and their kids are playing. And so all of a sudden, someone had won a prize, and Micah's running around with this laser light. And his sister looks and goes, where'd you get that? And so Micah begins to joyfully exclaim how how Kayla had lent him this and and given this to him and shared it with him, and so now he's got it. And so he's just finished saying how she shared it with him, and he's so happy, and now he has it. And so I go, Micah, Hannah doesn't have one. Could you share it with her? This kid goes crazy. You want me to share with her? This is mine. This is mine, Dad. And I, and I want to be like, Micah, come on. You just finished telling me that you got this because she shared with you. How are you not going to do that for another? And it's almost as if as I was writing the sermon, God came and tapped me and said, he's three. <laughs> You're 33. I don't get the thing that I want my three-year-old to get. I forget the gospel and who I was when I blow past, when I make excuses when I do nothing. And the gospel comes back to me and says, if you don't get this, you're either forgetting or worse, Seven Mile Road, you never got it in the first place. Uh, You need to hear this. If we're not passionately committed to doing justice, 
it may be that you never got the gospel in the first place. You got to hear that because that's strong. If you're not passionately committed to justice, it may be because you never got the gospel in the first place. Now, hear me carefully because this is important. I'm not saying that social justice is how you get saved. I'm saying social justice is the evidence that you are saved. It's the litmus test that all throughout the scriptures, God holds out and says, you want to know? You're not really sure if this thing is really true in your heart. Do you really believe this? You want to know? How does that work out in how you deal with the poor? Because this is the litmus test. If you are not passionately committed to social justice, it's not that that won't save you. It's that it may be evidence that you were never saved. One preacher named Tim Keller says it like this. It may be a sign that you were never poor in spirit. It's that you were always middle class in spirit. What does middle class in spirit look like? Middle class in spirit says, you know what? I am where I am with God because I worked hard for it. He did his part and I did my part. I did something with what he gave me. And so I am where I am. And I pulled up myself by my bootstraps. And you know what the poor should do? They should do the same. They should pull up themselves by the bootstraps just like I did. And I worked hard to get here where I am. Yes, you worked hard with what God gave you. Nobody, you didn't do anything special to be born where you were to the family you were born to. You started with a billion advantages. Now, hear me again. The middle class and spirit will always see that they had a part in this and worked hard for it. And so their attitude to the poor will also be different. And the gospel is coming and saying, until you see that you were poor, blind, destitute, undeserving. You know, if, you're, if your approach is, you know, we'll only give to those who are deserving. If the Lord in heaven said that, he would have stayed in heaven. Could have saved himself a trip. There was no one here deserving. No one who wouldn't have took his resources and wasted it a million fold. Now, there are a million ways this has to be worked out in wisdom, with practicalities and all the rest. But what I'm after today is where's your heart? If your heart is not passionately committed to social justice, it may be a sign that you were never justified in the first place. You were never made right with God. The life of Jesus moves us to be passionately committed to social justice. The death of Jesus moves us to be passionately committed to doing justice. Third and finally, the resurrection of Jesus moves us towards doing justice. Here's my only point with this. If you were to ask me, the truth is, it's not that I didn't know that social justice or working in these ways that we've described today are important. It's just that deep down, I never really thought they were that important. It's not that I didn't know they were important. It's just that deep down, I never thought that they were that important. Now, I would never say this out loud. But in my mind, here's what I'm thinking. What's the point? Right? In my mind, I'm thinking, who cares if we make better schools? Who cares if we improve neighborhoods or make the streets safer or the playgrounds cleaner? Because at the end of the day, what really matters for the Christian is what? The soul. That's what really matters. Right, Christians, we're to be soul winners. That's who we are. And so in my mind, I'm thinking this all is good. It's sort of the icing on the cake. But what's really important is the soul. And so it's the spiritual that matters, not the physical or the material. And I always figured God's just going to destroy this whole thing anyway. So what's the point? Why are you going to rebuild the engine of an old car if you're just going to drive it into a tree? So if this whole thing is going to, to the trash heap, then why work for better streets or safer neighborhoods and all the rest? And it takes this series, I'm telling you, to remind me of what truth is. Remember, a few weeks ago, if you were here, you heard us say it was the Greeks back in the day who thought that the material and the body was just a prison, right? They thought everything material was base and beneath, and the spiritual, the soul, is what really mattered. And so they welcomed death because they figured then the soul could be set free and spring to the good life. And finally, you'd be done away with this prison, this material, physical world. But then the resurrection comes and shatters all their worldviews. The resurrection comes and says, suddenly, the body is not something God's going to throw on a trash heap, but he's going to restore and renew. Remember, friends, don't forget this. Our belief in the resurrection is not this spiritual Jesus that floated in 
like vapor into the sky. It's not this inner feeling. Our belief in the resurrection is he rose bodily. He ate fish. He had, he had bones and flesh, he said. And then likewise, this earth is not something that God's going to simply throw away into the trash heap. But just like the body is going to transform and purify and glorify and resurrect. I heard a preacher say rightly this week, when you read the last chapters of the Bible, it's not that all the saved Christians float up to heaven. Go read Revelation 21, 22 again. The Bible ends not with all the saved Christians floating to heaven, but what? Heaven coming down to earth. And then I saw the new heavens and the new earth. And the dwelling place of God is now with man. And behold, I saw heavenly Jerusalem come down to earth. That is that God intends to not abandon his creation, but renew it, transform it, purify it. And once they got that, once the early Christians, the, the Greeks understood that, they, they realized everything's different. God is not on a project to destroy creation, including this world. But God is in a project to transform everything into a place where there will be no more injustice. So hear me. What that means, if that's true, in light of the resurrection, is that when we work for justice, we are working in the direction to which everything is headed. When you and I work for justice, we're working in the direction towards which Jesus is going to make all things new. We're headed in the direction of the kingdom. The world finally has a judge who will make all things right. It's not fully here. It's at the top of the driveway. But it's coming. And we're working in light of that coming reality. Listen to me. When the first Christians, those Greeks and Jews, understood that, it shattered everything that they thought. And in light of the resurrection, here's what they started doing. They started caring for the sick and helping the poor and working for justice. In fact, so much so that outsiders noticed. Let me read you one last quote. This emperor named Julian, a Roman emperor who was not a fan of Christianity, and you'll hear it in what he says. He sees the Christians, and this is what he says. These impious Galileans, that's what he calls the Christians. These impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape, that is love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes, Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. Do you hear that? The Roman Emperor Julian is saying, when I look at these Christians, they're always feeding the poor. And not just their poor, they're feeding our poor. And they're feeding our poor to the point that the people are flocking to their God and showing contempt for ours. Our priests neglect them, but these hated Galileans keep caring for the poor. And, and when you put that together, here's what's ironic. Here I am thinking that the spiritual stuff is what matters, not the physical stuff. What we need is evangelism, not justice. And I'm pitting these two against each other as though they're opposed. I'm saying we got to get out there and give them living water, not water. we got to give them the bread of heaven, not bread. And I'm pitting these two against each other rather than seeing, don't you see, they go hand in hand. In fact, the Emperor Julian is showing us that when one was happening, it led to the other. Don't miss this. That is, that as the gospel moved these people to do justice, those on the outside saw the justice and were moved into the gospel. As the gospel moved them to do justice, those on the outside were moved through that to see the gospel. It's, it's as if the circle is finally closed. This is what you see in Acts as well. They, they feed the multitudes and the church grows. Why? Because the outside watching world sees these guys are finally doing something. I want in on that. That somehow social justice actually leads to them seeing the gospel better than they had ever seen before. These are not pitted enemies. These are two wings of an airplane. Let's steady the whole thing on the right course. We need living water and water. We need bread and the bread of heaven. We need to do works and do them in Jesus' name. So that as the gospel moves us towards action, 
the world might see that action and be moved towards the gospel. Samar Road, you know we ought to be about justice. But my hope is that in seeing, in maintaining, in keeping a vision of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we might be moved to be passionately committed to justice. We ought to care for single moms and children like the Bucks County GCM and Mainline GCM does with Christ Home and Home of the Sparrow. We ought to get into neighborhoods and we ought to tutor kids. We ought to build computer labs. That is one of the most proud things I am. I am so proud of the Willow Grove GCM for doing that. There is, in North Hills community, an entire computer lab that didn't exist there before, permanently there for children. You know what that is? That's whispering into Willow Grove, Jesus has arrived. He's risen. His rule and his reign has broken in, and all things will be made new, and everyone will have the same rights. This is the kingdom to come. It's arrived. It's at the top of the driveway. We should go and work for human trafficking to fight it, to end it, to send a couple there, to send people there, to send teams there. Every year we should do these things because Jesus has risen. He's broken in. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus will move us to be a people that are committed to social justice so that in seeing the gospel we might act and in seeing us act people might see the gospel and the loop would be closed. He's come. It's broken in. It's at the top of the driveway. So may our hearts say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that the Spirit would now take these puffs of air, multiply them over into our hearts, bury them deep, produce fruit, so that this would be more than hearing of the word and so deceiving ourselves, but that this would result in countless good works done in your name. We pray for North Hills community, that you would bless them and do so through your hands and feet there in the Willow Grove GCM, the community group that we have there. We pray that you would bless Anne Frank School, that you would do so through the Northeast GCM as they work there. We pray for the people of Mainline as you work through them, and we pray for Christ Home and its children as you work through the folks in Bucks County. We pray for our brother and sister who are even now in Bombay, India, fighting human trafficking. We pray for the medical professionals and IT professionals and others who are getting ready for another trip over. We pray that in many ways, to the ends of the earth, your reign would be known as justice spreads everywhere. We pray that we would see the face of Christ and the people we walk past, and you'd help us to know what to do, how to do it, and give us wisdom for the days ahead. Come multiply these words many times over and produce fruit for your great name. This is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.